0: This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock?
1: Tech story is front and center. What
0: will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action.
1: A significant sell-off in European assets. It
0: feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in.
1: This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy
0: Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years
2: on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York, Guy Johnson is off today. What a week. TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. There's so much to digest here. Let's get you caught up, though, on the really unbelievable price action. So The FTSE 100 closes at a record high, up a full 1% point. 7901, spot 80 is where uh, we closed here. European stocks on the brink of a bull market in general. The CAC and the DAX are already in a bull market. Uh, Eurostock 600 closes in, finally, on a bull market as well. I mean, These are really crazy moves, considering the amount of hawkish talk that we got all across the board from the BOE, the Fed, um, and the ECB. The bond market, you had that nice rally, nice, the crazy rally yesterday, and you're seeing some selling pressure. You have German bonds uh, up by 11 basis points, uh, Italy BTPs up 12 basis points, but that's really about the U.S. data for the jobs market coming in very strong, as well as ISM services coming in very strong as well. We're going to try and make sense of all this for you over the next hour. Wish me luck on that. in the meantime, I do want to get you some other headlines here. Here is Charlie Powell.
3: Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Happy Friday. Indeed, what a week and what a week for commuting. Britain's rail network snarled by another mass strike today with the biggest train drivers union warning that more industrial action could be announced if talks next week don't lead to a breakthrough. The labor group ASLIF says more than 12,000 drivers walked out for the second day this week, shutting down service on 15 of the U.K.'s main train lines Major stations in the capital, such as London Bridge and Victoria, were closed. The Bank of England's two top policymakers signal that the most aggressive tightening cycle in three decades may be nearing an end. Chief Economist Hugh Pills says policymakers must avoid going too far on lifting borrowing costs. And Governor Andrew Bailey did not rule out another rate rise, but dropped previous language that further increases are very likely. Britain's Markets Watchdog has asked firms to amend or remove almost 86 promotions last year, 14 times more than 2021, as it targets a growing number of internet personalities posting ads that break its rules. So-called Finfluencers, who advertise financial products on social media, have become a growing concern for the Financial Conduct Authority. That is the latest from the News Desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York.
0: Finfluencers?
3: Indeed, Finfluencers. And I'm sure you have it anytime you post on either TikTok or Instagram, and you might have had a problem with a business, you got to think to yourself, do I post this or not? Would I be perceived as a finfluencer Mm -hmm. if it's a good financial service? Or if you've got a problem, would they say, hey, does that affect your journalistic integrity?
0: Wow, this is yeah. getting into really deep water. It, 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 it's
3: a conflict. A... I, I don't know if you guys ever deal with this on, uh, on Instagram or TikTok, yeah, yeah, but no, I, th- I, I think about it all the time. How do you so... comment
0: on something when you. Yeah, yeah. yeah and and the point
3: to... is, you don't. You yeah. don't. You that's just... why
0: I just stick to opinions about my family and my
3: uh, Yeah, and or, so. or how cute that little dog is or what's going on I can in the airport. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah, so fair that's enough. what I do. Cheers.
0: All right, Charlie. He'll be back in just about half an hour. All right, let's get to these markets here. Just unwrap everything that we've seen. Kriti Gupta joins us, Bloomberg Markets correspondent and market show host. Uh, joins me now. Um, What happened? What are traders (laughs) talking about? What is the takeaway from markets this week?
2: Yeah, so look, there is a seasonality that comes with this particular set of of numbers. We have to headline with that. 517,000 relative to, I think, an estimate of uh, I can't remember exactly, 110, one ten one eighty. I can't remember. Um, regardless, it blew him out of the water. Regardless, um, it was still really good. It was still really, really good, which is not good for the Federal Reserve. They don't want to see a number like this. So, the strength here is really what's driving the bond market. No surprise. A 10-year yield higher by, well, 12 basis points right now, but at one point it was higher by about 16 basis points. And you're seeing that move across the curve. You're seeing the dollar uh, strengthening by about 1%. The stock market is doing something completely different. I know. The bond market is paying attention to the jobs numbers. The stock market is paying attention to earnings. And this is really important because if you look at what we got yesterday from our alphabets, our Amazons, um, our Apples. Now, the headline numbers, sure, they weren't great. But let's put this into some perspective here because you kind of have to broaden out by about three days. And this is a Eddie VanderWalt trip or or a tip, a trick of the trade, if you will. Broaden out three days. Uh See what happened three days ago. Three days ago, we were going into Meta earnings. It was negative sentiment. Meta kind of changed the tape. You had very positive numbers. Plus, Chairman Powell, a dovish pivot. So on Thursday, risk sentiment was just flying high, and you saw that in a four percent move in the Nasdaq, higher, seven eight percent gains in your Alphabet's, your Amazon's, um, and your what's the, what Apple's as mm-hmm, well.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You there is not a an earnings report in the world. It could have been 100% across across the board that wouldn't have ended in some sort of post-market sell-off because of that reason.
0: Yes, but that doesn't explain, say, the European rally. True. And closing in a bull market, considering how hawkish the ECB is going to be. So I can understand the expectation game for 72 hours. Yeah. But even still, the macro read wasn't great. But OK, even if we pretend like there were silver linings, sure. it doesn't explain everything.
2: It doesn't explain everything. And look, I'm... I'm going to go with the U.S. story here very specifically. Of course, we are looking to a European audience. But one of the big stories, one of the big game changers here is who is actually in charge of the trade. Is it the Fed or is it the ECB? Mm -hmm. And I would argue it's the ECB because of the ripple effects you're going to get from the currency move. If you were looking at a hawkish ECB that is basically said they're going to hike 50 basis points next month as well and is potentially going to go even further. Same thing with the BOE. That is going to have a ripple effect to the downside for the dollar. And you saw that Mm -hmm. in yesterday's trade because the dollar was weaker, I want to say about 1.2% off the top of my head, uh, driven by the euro and the pound. Mm -hmm. That's important information because when you have a weaker dollar at a time when the market is still extremely positioned long dollar – it creates an incentive for a lot of European and Asian investors to hop into the stock market and Mm -hmm. the commodities market, because it is now cheaper Mm -hmm. by relative science, basically, Mm -hmm. into 2022. As you start to see the dollar weaken, which I believe is the consensus trade here, that the longs are eventually going to come off, specifically because the ECB is so hawkish, that tends to portend well for the stock market. And that's why you're seeing that divergence here, Mm. I think, um, in the stock market today, because The bond market is paying attention to the Fed, the jobs numbers, the macro. I think the stock market, if you look at the individual movers, it is a a company by company story. Tesla, Mm -hmm. for example, the Mm -hmm. EV uh, tax credits that were expanded, that's your biggest driver for the S&P 500 today.
0: That's really interesting. I wonder how long that that, can that continue? I mean, I guess it can, right? Bottoms up and top down. You can do both at the same time. You, you can do trade both different at stuff. the same time. Right? We haven't seen that in so long. <laughs> well, this is
2: what uh, Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley, uh, CIO and head of equity strategy there, has been talking about for six months. I think in October he made this call and he said, "Look and look." He's an Uber bear. We have to talk about that, but. I think in, in October, he made the call that at some point, the tape is going to switch from the macro Fed-driven headlines mm-hmm. to the earnings-driven headlines. Mm-hmm. And we he said it would happen in October. It didn't really happen until just now, when the Fed is no longer driving the narrative. I mean, it is on, say, Fed Day. But day-to-day, like, for example, for today, it's not the macro that's driving the stock market. So that switch that Mike Wilson predicted about four months ago, I think it's afoot now. And that's something to pay attention to.
0: So... What are you hearing from traders in terms of liquidity, volatility, the positioning, sort of the, the the things that will set us up for a rally or a sell-off?
2: Yeah. So, look, they're looking for reasons to buy here because there is a consensus in the market right now that 2022 was extremely overdone. And that's To the why, downside. To mm-hmm. the downside, right. And so any kind of silver lining you're going to see is going to be a positive for traders. And you can see that with this kind of momentous rally we've seen in the last five months. Even the idea, I believe there was a story today that you are starting the cyber attack on um, Mm -hmm. Ion ion B that's basically having the CFTC CFTC report, which kind of assesses future positions. That's getting delayed. And even that isn't really... um, affecting traders that much day-to-day outside of like margins and settlements, where ordinarily, if that had happened two months ago, that would have been a major risk sentiment driver to the downside. And that's, I think, the perceived difference in the way traders are thinking about this.
0: And we will get more on that derivative yeah. story, which is super fascinating. Um, Kriti, thanks a lot. I know you got to run. good Gupta joining us, uh, Bloomberg Markets a reporter and uh, and uh, co-host at the 1 o'clock hour. All right, coming up, um, we are going to be talking about the U.K. Yes, the FTSE 100 closes uh, at a record, but they're closing. Clouds.
4: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. Listen to Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. The FTSE closing at a record high. Energy leading the way up over 2.5%. Healthcare, a similar story. The only real laggards were utilities and real estate and a little bit of communications uh, as well. Does the underlying economic model support this kind of rally? Well, let's get more now with Phil- Philip Aldrich, Keith's Bloomberg UK economy reporter. Okay, I understand you're not an equities analyst but you have the FTSE 100 and i appreciate that that's uh internationally exposed and it's a large cap stock index but does that sort of meld with the kind of underlying economic data that we see what we heard from andrew bailey yesterday and hugh pill the chief economist today
1: i guess i guess it does if you believe that um sort of tighter monetary policy bears down on uh, equity values. So they seem to be they seem to be hinting that we're coming to the end of the rate rising cycle. Ten, we've had 10 rate, rate rises in a row. The indication is that we're going to we're going to go slow here. Um, if we go forward at all anymore, markets only expecting another quarter point rate rise now. So given that you know markets like uh, like the environment where rates are not going to be rising any further, you know, that you, you can see why they've, they've bumped uh, a little bit here. The broader backdrop, no, that's not that's not great. Um, but then, you know, the pound has been weak. And also, you know, that that does help the FTSE 100 um, levels because there's a True. lot of do- dollar earnings in there. So
0: True. And we'll, and we'll get to the broader difficulties in a second. But Hugh Pill, um, I mentioned chief economist, uh, was talking about inflation. He expects inflation to fall sharply this year, and they want to see it holding below inflation, quote, sustainably. Do we have timelines for that? Do we understand what that actually means and what that looks like? Because fall substantially is a pretty bold call, no?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> um, I mean, there is, there, so inflation is expected to fall uh, because if there, if there are some, you know, Basic functions of the energy prices and commodity price right. rises, so that's going to fall out. I mean, we're, they're expecting inflation to, which peaked at about eleven point one percent in October, to fall to eight percent by summer. So that still looks pretty high. That's four times the the target measure, isn't it? So um, the uh, it, it does come down under their central forecast base uh, to below 1% next year. So that uh, back in the next year. So that's when you're w- when you start to say, well, are, are these other have the rate rises gone too far? But the but the bank was really keen to stress that the uh, rate rises and uh, the inflation may well prove more sticky. They say that the upside risks are greater than they ever have been before. That was what yeah. Bailey said in the press conference. So they're taking a central forecast, but they're just saying we, we, we kind of got to anticipate given that we've missed the inflation threat, quite like most central banks, um, in the past. So, they they don't want to miss it again, so they're saying the upside risks, and that's what we're looking at, um, mainly.
0: Which brings us to the underlying economics, which you had a great piece out today that talked about basically all the workers that are just gone, and then what that winds up meaning for the economy. Talk us through it.
1: Yeah, so it's the UK's—I mean, everybody lost workers in the pandemic, um, and then inactivity rates went up. You saw it in, in the Great Resignation um, in America, and uh, and even in in the Euro area. So, but what has happened elsewhere is that you now have higher levels of employment than you do. Uh, than you did before the pandemic in almost, in like all industrialised economies, with the exception of the UK. We still have 300,000 fewer people in work than before the pandemic, Um, which is uh, really bearing down on uh, our growth potential because we had very weak productivity. So the thing which was keeping our overall growth up was that we had a very rapid growth in the uh, uh, labour supply. So more and more people were coming into the labour market. Um, That has now... um, reverse. So the, so productivity is running at about 0.5% a year. Now you've got labour supply growth of about 0.1% to 0.2%. So that's a potential output for the UK. That's our speed limit on growth of about 0.7% compares with 1.7% before the pandemic average and 2.7% before the financial crisis. It's like, um, it, you know, this is the Bank of England saying, you know, there is a pretty bleak future ahead um, unless we get people back into the, into the workforce.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and this was supposed to be the moment, right? Post Brexit, this was a jam. This is when it was going to be the best time for you guys. Okay, Philip, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you for all your wonderful analysis. Philip Aldrich, who covers the UK economy uh, for Bloomberg. Some breaking news the EU agrees to impose a $100 price cap on diesel exports from Russia. More next. This is Bloomberg.
4: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on
3: Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You're listening to cable, Bloomberg DAP Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is off today. So, here was a story that totally went under my radar, but I think it's worth delving into. So, early Tuesday morning in Europe, a little known but critically important software company that underpins the smooth functioning of stock bonds and commodities markets seized up. This is London based Ion Trading UK, which was reportedly a victim of a cyber attack. I want to dig into a little bit of this here with Catherine Doherty, a Bloomberg finance reporter totally slipped my radar, Catherine, like 100%. What happened? And then we'll get to the implications next.
4: So I think a reason it might have slipped your radar is this was a slow-moving train wreck in a lot of ways. Um, we were getting information, and Tuesday was was just the trickle effect. But today, Friday, a few days later, we're still seeing lasting impact. What is that impact? Specifically, the traders um, that are trying to make these futures trades and and within the derivatives market, they are now having to process some of these trades manually because the systems are still down. It's only the systems that ION is responsible for. Um, So it's not every single bank. It's not every single broker-dealer. But the broker-dealers that do use this ION system, the system is still offline. And so if the trades need to be processed today, they're being done manually. So we're seeing really a a reversal of a a system that has developed into being automatic and working seamlessly. uh, And and we haven't even yet seen the impact in terms of volumes. Um, I've been speaking to some sources trying to understand and a lot of them are telling me we may not actually see the numbers um, meaningfully impacted for a few days, but it's not to say that the impact isn't happening as we speak.
0: How did this? How did the cyber attack happen?
4: So we're still diving into the, the exact elements of, of how and and why. Um, what we do know is that this was a cyber attack that um, is being tied to to Russia. Um, they have set a deadline of tomorrow, so we're actually waiting for more detail in terms of what happens next. Um, they say that they have information um, data. What sort of data? We're still um, figuring out, but presumably it would be tied to uh, these trades and these firms, but it's not going to be specifically personal data from the firms. It's more the, the trades themselves. And if they do not get the, the ransom that they are asking for, they say that tomorrow is the deadline that they would release that data. Again, we presume that it would be trading data. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the exact element of, of how um, that is is the big question. And that's what regulators are digging into so that Um, this kind of event does not happen again. It's really caused a huge disruption across the market, even for uh, parties that weren't direct victims of of the cyber attack. Everyone is feeling the ripple effects.
0: Talk to me about liquidity. Does it impact liquidity at all? I mean, it's just so funny that, like, the 80s weren't that long ago. Well, at least... Not for me, and and it feels like oh wait we're back to the '80s. That's so arcane. When it's like, <laughs> ha- can, can, what part sees up the most? Like how's liquidity? Um, walk me through more of the implications.
4: So it's really just the process that again I, I just go back to that term of automation. Um, these are middle and and back office processes that mm-hmm. um, that essentially are were computer generated so you didn't need as much of a human touch element to it and because they have been taken offline um, and, for the, and when I say offline it's it's only those that were affected um, that is why we've had to take this, the, the, the market itself has had to take a few steps back um, and it's even impacted the process of reporting which eventually goes to the regulators the CFTC put out a statement last night At the end of the week, they normally put out a report Mm -hmm. that shows um, the biggest trades, and this is part of the regulatory process. They indicated last night that that report was needed to be delayed because of this entire incident. They're not able to collect all of the trades and process them or or get all the accurate information in a timely manner. Um, So we expect that to be delayed into next week.
0: Do we know how much money like, could be potentially tied up in all this or locked up in these trades?
4: So the trades are still happening. In fact, um, some folks I talk to say that the uh, the parties that are affected are just telling their clients to trade elsewhere. So the market is still functioning um, and, and money is still flowing. It's just a matter of um, how clunky that system has become because of the, this snafu, to put it mildly. Um, now, it's really the data that I think is the big question in terms of what is locked up or, or what's being held. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that could have some value if it's released and put out there. Um, who, who knows what the impact is going once we start um, the, the, the market opens on Monday.
0: And apparently this was not the only group. So the group known as the gang as Lockbit, which, as you pointed out, uh, a ransomware operator. Apparently this wasn't the only hack. They were also uh, had a series of breaches in the U.K. The Postal Service, local government agencies in the U.S. I mean, yikes.
4: It, yeah, we've we've seen a, a lot of stories, um, not just this week, but. Uh, cyber attacks are not a, a new phenomenon, unfortunately, um, and this is just a, a, a big market story in terms of how it's affected Europe, the U.S., um, and and why it matters so much, too, is just these hundreds of billions of dollars that trade every day in the derivatives market. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's more so than um, many even Equity trading platforms. Um, it, we're talking money that's moving in scale here um, that all of a sudden is facing huge barriers when these systems go offline.
0: Catherine, I super appreciate it. I, I don't envy you having to follow this through. Uh, Catherine Doherty, a fascinating, fascinating point there. Um, basically, you're looking at derivatives trading all the way back into the 1980s. I was alive, Guy was alive. Not that many other people, maybe, we talked to were. Um, Okay, we're taking a look at the markets here. We're still seeing a nice uh, move in the equity market uh, off its lows by a lot. Um, as Kritti pointed out, you're looking at the Dow in positive territory. The Nasdaq's a little bit light, or actually flat. Uh, the S&P is down just one tenth of one percent. A lot of these car makers, like Tesla, um, are doing really well after the U.S. expanded uh, EV credits to uh, SUVs. So that was a huge uh, boost for these guys. We're going to get more on U.S. markets and also on the export uh, ban from Russia. This is Bloomberg.
5: This
4: is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. Listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Uh, Guy Johnson is off today. Um, A great comeback for the equity market. Um, The S&P is now down just one tenth. Uh, The Nasdaq is pretty much flat. Um, You still have some winners and losers, but as Kriti was pointing out earlier, within the bond market, you definitely have some selling as yields move higher, and that's in direct response to the solid job set as well as a solid ISM uh, services data as well. You're at the two-year up by 16 basis points. But then maybe we're more idiosyncratic or bottoms up when it comes to individual stock names in the U.S. I just want to highlight one, and that's Ford. Down 6%. It could have been worse. I mean, at one point, it was down the most in four months. It missed on earnings. Um, There's rough execution. They're looking at supply shortages. Deutsche Bank moved the stock to sell. Um, It's been like hit after hit. Um, Deutsche Bank is looking at skepticism that management can actually achieve their $2.5 billion in cost savings that it wants to get this year. So, a lot of bad news wrapped in uh, to Ford, for example. Apple, though, is still making a run to the upside, uh, despite earnings that were also a bit worrisome. Um, They're still looking at supply chain problems. They're also looking at underlying weak demand. Both of those things aren't things that you want to see when it comes to Apple, and yet that stock is now up over 3%. I should point out, Amazon, though, uh, still down after their difficult earnings, uh, and Google struggling as well. Okay, so quick snapshot there. We will get to more individual market movers as well as the jobs data in just a moment. Here's Charlie Pella, right. though, with some other headlines.
3: Thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Let us begin with UK markets, because for the first time since 2018, Britain's blue chip stocks closed at a record. The FTSE 100 index up 1% as the pound slumped after the dollar rallied on stronger than expected jobs data. FTSE 100 up one percent today to a record of 79.01. Shops and restaurants in London suffered another sharp, sharp drop in demand today on the latest day of strikes by UK train drivers. Central London footfall was 14 percent lower than a week earlier, according to retail research company Springboard, which measured the data up until noon today across the UK's shopping area as a whole, it was down by 4.2%. Sources tell Bloomberg European Union member states have agreed to impose a cap of $100 per barrel on sales of Russian diesel to third countries. As part of an effort to limit Moscow's revenues, the price cap mechanism is tied to an EU ban on seaborne imports of Russian refined fuels that kicks in Sunday. France says it will look at extending the lifespan of its nuclear reactors to 60 years and beyond as it seeks to cut the use of fossil fuels to generate electricity. That is the latest from the News Desk. And Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York.
0: All right, Charlie. Thank you so very much. I want to get back to those price caps here. Um, now, it was kind of expected, if you're looking at these price caps of $145 a barrel, uh, Woodmac, uh, the consultancy, was pointing out um, that this would really severely impact Russian refiners. Um, anyway, we spoke to uh, Ben Luckock. He is head of oil trading over Trafigura, a humongous oil trading firm. And we talked talk about some of the implications of this
6: uh, diesel is the, the key product that we're going to talk about I think today we've got this uh, new uh, ban that um, uh, starts on Sunday the 5th of February today is obviously Friday evening here in uh, in Europe we still don't have the exact details how this ban that begins on Sunday is going to to operate we don't know what the price will be and we don't know exactly what the rules are so a lot of what we're going to talk about is speculation although we do have some pretty good in- indicators how it might work um, Natalia made a good point there's still half a million barrels a day of diesel coming from russia into europe mainland europe in january this is meant to come to a halt in uh, in february we think it will diminish there is going likely to be a wind down period but come march we're not going to have any russian diesel coming into europe uh, I think the point made about uh, Middle Eastern refineries is a good one. You'll have China certainly producing, but we're all going to be talking about a resurgent China and let's see how much spare mm. diesel uh, capacity that China actually has when it comes to Europe's turn to want this in March and April as we head towards the European summer.
0: So Ben, to this point. What is Russia going to do with its product, right? It's not going to, like, all of a sudden shut down all its refineries, right? They're going to want to get money for the stuff that they're producing. Where is it going to go? What are you noticing in terms of vessels, in terms of fleets, and how the globe is kind of positioning for this big shift?
6: It's a key here because what you've had is you had the old days of Iran and Venezuela and there was a shadow fleet, it was relatively small. It would manage the, the, the sanctioned barrels. This Russian flow is, is vastly different, it's huge. What you've seen, because it's been quite well telegraphed that there were changes coming and certainly uh, this Feb 5 date's been around for four or five months, is the, the building of this shadow fleet into a much larger entity. Uh, we think there's approximately 400 crude oil vessels accounting for about 20% of the world's crude oil vessels that have switched from what we would call mainstream service into the shadow fleet to to ostensibly do Russian business. The same thing's happening on on products. There's approximately 200 product tankers, about 7% of the product tanker market, that have shifted into this business. Now, it can cope, I think, in the early days, but you've got to remember you're taking short-haul business. Russia's only three or four days away from uh, a number of European ports to very long-haul business on vessels that were designed, they're smaller vessels, to go short-haul. The problem that you've got here is these vessels are going to take a lot longer to return, your average tonne miles increases, creating a, a pretty big problem over time. So day one will be OK. But as this plays out in the coming months, I think you could possibly see a shortage of, uh, of product tankers. Now, where does it go is the other question you asked. It'll go to the same places that, uh, that, that people have been talking about for the past few months. I think your colleague Natalia mentioned uh, people having workarounds and blending and so on. I think there's a lot of people talking about how they can be clever and, 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 you know, and get rid of Russian oil. But it is a vast volume that needs to find a new home. And I think in the early days, maybe that's OK. But as time progresses, I think there'll be difficulties in the products markets.
1: Ben, what does this mean for pricing then? Europe gaining 80 percent of its diesel from Russia as it realises, it looks to the Saudis, the Middle East and China, maybe for that diesel import. What, what does it mean for pricing mm. in the months ahead?
6: I mean, there's been a big concern that there's going to be some sort of shortage. The market has taken its in its stride so far. There's a real belief in the current market that you know this will work itself out. And I guess it's the same answer as before. There, there are potential shortages coming forward because we're building a deep inefficiency into an oil market that has spent decades becoming incredibly efficient, very much a just-in-time industry. 100 million barrels a day comes out of the ground every day. It gets refined, delivered to, to consumers across the planet. Uh, this inefficiency that we've built in Will get worse over time. Inefficiencies tend to increase prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say at the moment prices aren't that bad. Crude oil has uh, has come off actually to more like eighty two dollars. Uh, some of the the diesel markets had a had a rough week, but I suspect going forward as these uh, changes really come into bite, consumers are likely to see higher prices.
0: Ben. What are you guys doing at at, at Trafigura with uh, with, with the ban? Like, are you still moving Russian oil? Like, are you blending? Like, how are you dealing with it right now?
6: really very little is the answer Um, we're Europeans, we live in Europe we're subject to the rules and regulations that are are placed on us, Uh, there are some very small pieces of business we've done on some what I would call boutique products um, obviously within the rules and regulations that are placed on us Uh, and at the moment honestly we've got a a group of uh, compliance people and lawyers waiting to see what the rules are so for now the answer to your question is very little, we we, we traditionally have been a large uh, lifter of Russian oil that came to a grinding halt at the uh, the beginning of the war, and uh, we're still waiting to see what the rules are, and uh, and doing very little Russian business.
0: Uh, that was Ben Lecoq of Traffic Trafiguera. That was taped right before we got the uh, details. But it was pretty expected that you were going to get a diesel cap of about $100 uh, and then a fuel oil about $45. Now, what I found really interesting about his the conversation is that the distortions that we're going to see within the product market, um, it's much easier to sort of move oil around in different directions. The product market's a lot tighter. Um, and refineries are also on maintenance right now because they didn't go on maintenance last year because there was so much demand and not enough supply. So you have some ma- um, refiners shut on the floor. Flip- Flip side, if China reopens, they could also reopen their refineries, particularly their smaller privately owned uh, refiners, which could actually then get more product out. (sighs) It's very complicated, and it really does all boil down to how China reopens and in what capacity. All right, kind of next, we're going to head to DC. This is Bloomberg.
5: This is The Cable
4: with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Heading over to D.C. in the news of the morning. So the Biden administration postponed Secretary of State Antony Blinken's upcoming trip to Beijing. Um, this comes less than 24 hours after detecting a Chinese surveillance balloon that was lingering at high altitude over sensitive nuclear sites in Montana. Henry Hordern uh, is over at the White House freezing. By the way, guys, it's really, really cold in the U.S. I mean, we're talking <laughs> like some serious negative temperatures with wind chill, but Guy's not here, so we can spare the weather conversation. Um, Anne-Marie, walk me through what people are talking about uh, in the White House with this, how this all evolved.
7: Well, actually, this moment, what everyone's really focused on is just the wrap-up of this Pentagon briefing we just got from Brigadier General Pat Ryder, who's uh, briefing reporters, talking about the fact that now the surveillance balloon is over central U.S. It could be up there for a few days. He said it doesn't pose a threat to any civilians. Um, It's above airspace. Um, but clearly they are going to be monitoring this over the course of the next few days because they had decided not to shoot it down. And part of the reason they decided not to shoot it down, um, which the Department of Defense talked about, was about uh, the risk that could be involved in that, like debris coming out of it and any sort of potential harm. Um, Obviously, this is a huge political issue internationally between Beijing and Washington, but also domestically, Um, pushback you're hearing from a lot of Republicans, um, because... The administration knew about the balloon on Wednesday, and Secretary of State Antony Blinken only just decided, uh, the State Department confirmed, postponing the trip today. Um, so obviously, there's a lot of questions about the timing of all of this, um, and also tons of questions about what exactly uh, is this surveillance balloon uh, learning. But we did get quite a conciliatory tone from China this morning, saying that they were regretful, and they're calling it a civilian airship.
0: Mm-hmm. OK. Is that a good thing that they were conciliatory? I mean, it feels like what's the what's the game plan behind this? Like what, what what's the political machinations behind the scenes with something like this? I find it really weird that all of a sudden we just kind of like noticed this like less than two days before Blinken was supposed to go to China. You know what I mean?
7: Yeah, well, the Pentagon has said that they've seen this before Surveillance balloons. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Tom Keane this morning was saying that it's something from a different era. He grew up with surveillance balloons. Uh, You know, my counter is, well, I grew up with drones. Right. (laughs) Uh, It begs the question why they just didn't use a a, a satellite, a lower level satellite Mm -hmm. that can also capture surveillance. So, why did they feel the need to bring in this balloon? That's a big question. I think people are wondering um, regarding China's decision. And also at a very sensitive time. Yeah. this was supposed to be a moment when Secretary Blinken was going to go to Beijing. He was going to meet not just his counterpart, but also Xi Jinping off the heels of Biden and Xi in Bali at the G20. Most recently, we had Treasury Secretary Yellen and Leo He in Switzerland. So this has been a putting what the administration would call a floor under the relationship. Now, it doesn't mean Blinken will never go. What the State Department official briefed us today is said that this balloon was a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and that now is not the right time for this planned trip. But he would go. Under the-
0: oh, Let's see how they get this back on track. Yeah, I was going to say, OK, so it's postponed for now. Um, what are the next steps? Like, what do, is it? Are these back channel talks? Like, what happens now?
7: Well, what we heard from. Brigadier Ryan, when he was uh, writer, excuse me, when he was briefing reporters, is he said that you know he, the department has always talked about maintaining open lines of communication with China, and he says that has not changed. So mm-hmm. I imagine there is lots of conversation. Uh, we do know that Secretary of State Blinken spoke to his counterpart, Wang Yi, earlier this morning saying, I will not be going. And obviously, uh, they gave their assessment of what's going on, that they do not believe this is uh, a civilian climate research balloon. They believe this is a spy surveillance balloon. Um, so they're not, there is conversations happening that, that you know, we're getting briefed on, and I imagine there's
0: just many more happening um, at a deeper level. Anne-Marie, really appreciate it. Great reporting. Really crazy 24 hours with this. Um, Anne-Marie Hordern joining us uh, from the White House. All right, coming up, we're going to talk more about the jobs number, get the details. You know the deal, right? 517,000 jobs added in the U.S. in January. Really, the aftermath rolling in in the markets. Unemployment rate moving lower to 3.4%. We're going to dig deeper with Mike McKee. This is Bloomberg.
4: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex
2: Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You're listening to Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's off today. All right, I got to say it, the main event, it's not over there. Yeah, I get the Pussy 100 closed at a record. Okay, sure, but it was really the jobs number here in the U.S. You're welcome. I felt like that definitely helped to propel uh, overall equity sentiment uh, a little bit more firmer here. All right, let's get Mike McKee, Bloomberg National Economics and Policy Correspondent, uh, to weigh in on this. First off, first off. That 517 number, 517,000 jobs added, is that the real number?
5: (laughs) We never know. I mean, these numbers are revised, so uh, there's...
0: 100% chance it will be revised.
5: But we don't know if it's going to be revised up or down and uh there are always seasonal adjustment factors that need to be taken into account. But it is what it is. I mean it's 517,000 jobs created. That's the number that goes into the books for now. That's the number that the Fed has to make policy on, uh Congress has to make policy on. So it's uh it, it's a strong report. Uh, whether it's exactly accurate or not is uh, less important than the fact that it does show the US labor market and, and thus the US economy is still very strong.
0: Walk us through the areas of strength within that number because some of it I found a bit surprising.
5: Well, a lot of it was in services, which, of course, has been the slowest uh, group to recover. Uh, Leisure and hospitality, 128,000 jobs. Uh, They have had a really hard time finding people to take jobs. And so that's um, some good news that maybe people are coming out of the woodwork or people who did not want to uh, settle for those jobs before are now filling some of them. And in terms of uh, pay, it does suggest that uh, that's helping hold down wage increases because those are lower-paid jobs. There were 25,000 construction jobs, which yeah, that's that was uh, surprising. I mean, it, it, you you do have seasonal adjustments in that category, but. Um, this is a lousy time of year and you know we are try- builders are trying to work down backlogs but they're not mm-hmm. starting any new homes so it's uh it's an impressive number as well and uh, we've all been talking about manufacturing and we got the ISM report that's below 50 and things like that and we get 19,000 uh, manufacturing jobs so yeah. there's still a, a lot of strength out there and the ANIC data that we hear from People at the Fed and and uh, and companies, when you're talking to CEOs on uh, earnings days, is that they're still anxious to find people to work.
0: So you had a market reaction that made sense. You had equities much lower. You had yields a little bit higher. But I remember after the number came out, I was like, man, why aren't yields really jumping? And then we got the ISM services number, and then I was proven wrong because then all of a sudden two-year yields were up by about 16 basis points. Walk us through these numbers.
5: <laughs> well, the ISM numbers were, were pretty good because services uh, last month took a big dive into the 40s, which is the area people think of as contraction. And then today it jumps all the way back up to 55.2, And new orders go to 60.4, very high from 45.2. So some good news there, plus a slight decline in prices paid. Uh, again, it's that... Uh, soft landing scenario that it keeps uh, keeps alive because we're seeing strength in the economy, but we're seeing prices go down. If that continues, then the Fed's going to win. Uh, I was thinking this morning when reading all the analysis, before the jobs numbers came out, but basically of how Jay Powell had done and what people were thinking of the news out there and how the market had reacted and thinking, boy, if one side or the other is correct, there's going to be a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And it does seem to be that there's going to be some pain today.
0: Yeah. Um, well, again, not as much as you might have thought considering the strength of these numbers. So then after... I had never seen so many economist notes that started with the word wow after we got all <laughs> these numbers, I have to be yeah. honest. Um, and I'm wondering, the conversation seems to be turning a bit into, hey, maybe this time the cycle is different. There is a different component to this cycle, the pandemic, and then clearing the excess from the pandemic that's going to make this Fundamentally different, and we have to treat it differently. What do you think about that?
5: Well, the first thing they teach you when you go to economics school uh, is you never say the words "this time it's different" because it never 100% is. True. But mm-hmm. in this time, it's like a life it, lesson, it might be. We we have not had a pandemic in the lifespan of pretty much any American and certainly not since we've had uh, reasonably decent economic statistics. So there are no models that work on this. It doesn't tell you what should happen. And we didn't have an economy that was falling into recession because uh, there was too much uh, money chasing too few goods or because companies had overproduced or something like that. Uh, We had an economy that was operating uh, at almost full capacity before the pandemic. And then it was all shut down in a day. And then after that, you're restarting it. And for a lot of different reasons, people have uh, been slow to come back to the labor force. Now they're doing that. People had a lot of money in their uh, savings accounts because of stimulus, and they're spending that, but they're also saving some now. So there's a good chance this time could be different because the whole event has been so unique. The problem for the Fed and the problem for people in markets is they're all trying to use uh, economic mm-hmm. models that that have no priors, no history.
0: Right. And therein kind of lies the issue. So I guess then the question is, what data point do we need to be focusing on the most, considering that a lot of the data points seem to run a little counterintuitive with each other, as you pointed out Um like housing's rolling over, but construction jobs were up. Like, what's going to be the best signal now?
5: Well, the best signal is, is still going to be the inflation numbers, whether you want to use okay. CPI or PCE. So, it's still going to
0: be core services x housing.
5: Yeah, okay. um, we are seeing some scary little signs out there that maybe uh, housing has bottomed, and People might start bidding prices up again. We don't know.
0: I'm still hearing a but, bidding wars in New Jersey. have you, you been got, hearing this? No, but oh, I, okay. I haven't I have. been
5: looking at houses in New Jersey. Also fair. Uh, but <laughs> if rents uh, continue to fall, and we have seen an enormous amount of apartment construction, and there's a fairly high vacancy rate, so rents should continue to fall. And the way that feeds, the way the whole housing thing feeds into the inflation numbers, is through rent calculations. So we should see inflation come down there the fed is going to worry with this strong economy that it's going to be inflationary because it'll push wages and salaries up but right now it looks like those numbers are going down so keep an eye on the inflation numbers for the next couple of months
0: Yes, sir. Thank you, Mike McKee. I appreciate it. Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. All right, we made it through this insane week. I hope everyone gets a really nice rest this weekend. We will be back here on Monday and walk you through everything then. Have a great weekend, guys. This is Bloomberg.